0: So I mentioned that for various reasons it's perhaps challenging for me being here tonight preaching on this particular passage, but in fact there's a challenge for all of us here because this is God's law, and God's law challenges us. In this specific passage it's telling us that there are people whom we need to obey, people whom we need to honor, And that's challenging to us for a number of reasons, partly just because of our sinful nature. We don't like to be told what to do. We like to do our own thing. That's the essence of sin, really. But God's Word is telling us, no, that we're not to live like that. It's challenging to us, I think, also because in 21st century uh, Western, particularly uh, British or Scottish society, we're very independent, aren't we? Even compared to elsewhere, uh, say in Europe, Um, we, we maybe don't take as much to do with our families as some societies do. We're very independent in that regard. So God's word challenges us. Well, as we look at this commandment tonight, I want us to do three things. First of all, we're going to look at ourselves in light of God's law. Then secondly, I want us to look at Jesus in light of God's law. And then finally, we're going to return to where we started. We're going to look at ourselves again in light of what we've considered. So first of all, we look at ourselves in light of the fifth commandment. What is it specifically saying to us? Honor your father and mother. First of all, what does it mean by father and mother? Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Surely he knows that much. Well, what's your, your father and your mother? Well, obviously it is speaking about our relationship uh, to our parents. But there is a verse in the Bible elsewhere where it says, "Give to everyone what you owe him. If respect, then respect, if honor, then honor." Uh, the idea it's a little bit like, say, filing things on your computer. Maybe on your hard drive you have a folder, you put various things, that folder has a name. In that folder there's actually all sorts of documents, they all relate to a particular theme, but all sorts of different things. The commandments have been understood a little bit in that way. So each commandment is highlighting a specific issue, but it's actually standing as an example for a whole category of issues. So for example with the fifth commandment, the specific example that's being given to us here is that we're to honor our parents, speaking about our relationship to our mothers and our fathers. But the Bible also says that servants are to honor your masters. In our society, maybe we would think more uh, in terms of employees. Elsewhere, it says that citizens are to honor their rulers. Now, that's not easy for us, is it? because we live in a society where we're not encouraged to honor uh, those who have authority over us. Uh, uh, politicians, for example. In fact, we're encouraged really to hold, that, hold them in contempt. You see that to a certain extent even with the debate on independence. Whichever side you're on and whichever uh, politicians are representing uh, the different sides, sometimes the debate very much has to do with policies and principles and facts. But often... The debate descends really into very personal attacks on individuals. That's not really to do with independence, and it's not honoring them. Citizens are to honor their rulers. For those of us who are Christians, the Bible says that Christians are to honor their leaders. Some of you, I don't know, many of you, maybe some of you are visiting, but many of you are part of this congregation, And you have a minister, and you have elders, and they have responsibility for you, and you're to honor them. Now sometimes that will be easy for you to do when everything's going well, but sometimes maybe things won't be going so well. Maybe your minister or your elder will have to come to you and say, well look, this part of your life, what you're doing just now, that's not really right we don't like that. And our temptation at that point is to say, well, mind your own business. It's my life, not your life. But in fact, there's a passage, it's in 1 Thessalonians. Now we ask you, brothers, Paul says, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. There are people who have responsibility for you. At times, maybe they will need to admonish you. They will need to challenge you. That's not easy for them. It's not easy for us to receive. But when that happens, you need to honor them. Sometimes, perhaps, in a congregation, there will be a decision that has to be taken. And maybe it's not a black and white decision. Maybe it's not an obvious choice between good and bad. And the session takes a particular decision, and maybe you don't agree how do you respond? The Bible says that we're to honor our leaders and to obey them. The temptation very often is for us not to do that. It's not an easy thing. We're to honor all sorts of people whom God has placed over us. Of course, that goes both ways. If we are to honor them, then it also means that those who have authority over us are to behave in certain ways. Derek read the passage immediately after quoting this fifth commandment. Paul goes on to say, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So it goes uh, both ways. But if there are these various people that were to honor, what then does that actually mean? Honor your father and your mother. What is God telling us to do? Broadly speaking, there are two things. It involves actions, and attitudes. To honor somebody in the first place, very often, it will mean to do what they say. In Ephesians chapter 6 that we read, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. To honor somebody means to obey them. Now, some of you are younger. Maybe you're still living with your parents. My own son is here. (laughs) He was looking forward to this sermon. For children, at a certain age at least, it will involve obeying, doing what they say. For all of us, if we're in a church, we have leaders who are over us. At times, we will need to obey them. We do what they say. If we have a government over us, we need to obey the laws of the place where we live. Now, obviously, there are qualifications to that. Uh, As children grow up, for example, there's a difference between someone who's 10 and that child's relationship to his or her parents. There's a difference between a 10-year-old and a 50-year-old. So that changes. Also, of course, there's the fact that sometimes we'll be in situations where we're not able to obey. For example, uh, Peter, on one occasion, he had been forbidden to preach about Jesus. And what was Paul's response? Well, it wasn't to honor that. Sorry, Peter's response. He said, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Supposing a child had parents of a different religion. And they said, Well, we don't want you being a Christian. We don't want you going to church. We don't want you to do that. You couldn't obey that, could you? Supposing the government were to command us as Christians to do things contrary to God's law, well, we wouldn't be able to obey that. But normally, we should do what we're told. To honor somebody, it means to listen to them. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority, it says in Hebrews. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy not a burden. To honor people means to obey them. It has to do with our actions. But also, honoring people, it's more than our actions, it has to do with our attitude. Now, Paul, in Philippians, Paul is writing to this congregation, he's speaking about the way that in the past they have obeyed him, and he goes on to say, "...do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure." children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. We don't know what it's like to do the opposite of that, don't we? Somebody tells us to do something, and we do it, but we make it perfectly obvious how much we dislike doing it. We grumble and complain and talk about them behind their back. Paul is saying, no, that's not what you're to do. You're to have a different attitude than that. So, for example, that passage in Hebrews, obey your leaders, that has to do with our actions. But then he goes on to say obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. These leaders that you have, your minister and your elders, how do you conduct yourself with regard to them? Do you live in such a way that it makes their joy, that makes their job to be a delight, something that they like to do? Or or do we behave in such a way that it it makes their role to be burdensome? This commandment is speaking to our actions, we're to obey people, but it's also speaking to our attitude. So we've looked a little bit at this commandment and we've looked at ourselves in light of this passage. As your creator... The God who made you, he has given you his law. He tells you that there are people whom he's placed over you, there are people whom you're to obey, people to whom you're to have a respectful attitude. But what effect, then, does God's law have on us? One effect is that we realize what we're really like. When I moved to Edinburgh uh, this past summer, I was starting a new job, and I had to get a photo ID. So one day, first thing in the morning, I get the bus in, and I get off, and I go through Waverly and stop at the little photo booth to get my photo taken for my photo ID. And I wait while it spits out the photo, and then I look at it. Oh, dear. Is that what I look like first thing in the morning? What must I look like by the time it's the end of the day? You know, sometimes we're a bit taken aback when we see ourselves as we really are. That's the effect that God's law should have upon us. Because we like to think, well, I'm basically a good person, aren't I? Occasionally mess up a bit, but basically good. But as we come to God's law, as we meditate on it, and as I think, well, right, what kind of son have I been? And more than that, because this applies actually to what kind of father I've been, what, what kind of father have I been? How have I treated those in the church who have authority over me. What kind of employee have I been? Well, I haven't been basically a good person, have I? That's not what my heart is like. And with all of these commandments, it should be challenging to us. And part of the reason that we know that is if we go back to Exodus chapter 20, what was the people's response when they received the law? Did they think, oh, that's just what I'm like. I'm such a good person. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. When God's people experienced the holiness of God as it was revealed, to them through the commandments and through that experience of God, it had a profoundly humbling effect on them, and it made them cry out for a mediator, somebody to go between them and God. And so I want us to think tonight not only of ourselves in light of God's law, but I want us also to think about Jesus in light of God's law. On one occasion, Paul tells us that just exactly the right moment God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came under the law. Jesus' earthly life was shaped by God's law. So when we think of the law, we shouldn't think just of ourselves and the extent to which we have or haven't kept it. We should also think about Jesus. Because in the law, in a sense, we find a portrait of Jesus, because he did live this way. So what about the fifth commandment then? What reason is there to think that Jesus did this, apart from the general principle that Jesus didn't sin? two passages that come to mind. The Bible doesn't have an awful lot to say about Jesus' relationship to his physical parents. But for example, in Luke chapter 2, Some of you will be familiar with the passage. Jesus and his family had traveled to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. They had left. Jesus had stayed behind. And when they realized that he was missing, they were panicking. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days of searching, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, a couple of things stand out in that passage. Maybe most of all, Jesus' question to them, didn't you know that I had to be in my Father's house? We'll come back to that in a moment. But also, think of Mary standing there. Now, Mary maybe understood a lot, but maybe she didn't have quite as clear a picture of who Jesus is and what he was doing as we do. But she was seeing all of this and hearing all of this, and she was treasuring it in her heart, wondering what all of this meant. But here in verse 51, we read that Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus honored his father and mother. And that's really remarkable, isn't it? His children always think that they know better than their parents. Um, sometimes maybe they do, but they always think that they do. Well, with Jesus, it was always the case. <laughs> you know, Jesus always knew better than... Joseph, and Mary. And we see them coming to Jesus and, in a sense, telling him off. Why have you done this, Jesus? But notice that Jesus is very respectful to them. In fact, it's emphasized that he went home and he was obedient to them. If Jesus, given who he was, if Jesus honored his mother and father, how much more should we? So there's one episode at the beginning of Jesus' life. There's another episode at the end of Jesus' life. We read it's in uh, John chapter 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, a couple of things to understand here. Uh, Mary, at this point, apparently had been widowed. We're not explicitly told, but it would appear that Joseph had died. Jesus was the eldest son. He had been responsible for looking after her. He wasn't going to be there anymore. So Jesus looked, and there was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's usually understood to be the Apostle John. There was John, and Jesus entrusts Mary to John. Jesus was making provision for his mother when he wouldn't be there. Now, the astonishing thing about that is Jesus was dying. Jesus was actually on the cross dying, and he saw Mary there, And he was concerned about her, and he made sure that there was going to be somebody who would look after her. Maybe that's not so astonishing, actually, when you think of what Jesus, the whole reason Jesus was doing that was because of his love and his concern for us. So perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising to us. But there was Jesus looking at Mary, in a sense honoring his mother. Now, Obviously, the, the, the relationship had changed. He wasn't a young boy, was he? He was an adult. But Jesus was looking out for her. Jesus' relationship with his human parents, Joseph and Mary, was the very embodiment of the fifth commandment. That wasn't his only parental relationship, was it, if you will? Do you remember that cryptic statement that Jesus made to Mary when they found him in the temple? Didn't you know that I had to be where? In whose house? In his father's house. It wasn't Joseph's house. It was God the Father. Now, Jesus very often called God his Father. He identified himself as the Son of God. When we speak about Jesus as the Son of God, it is very complex. At the very least, it does actually mean much more than this, but at the very least, it means, for example, Adam was described as the Son of God. Later on in the Old Testament, we read that Israel was described as the son of God. Later still, God said to King David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will be his father and he will be my son. The descendant of David, the heir to the throne, in a sense, he was called God's son. So Solomon, for example, when we say that Jesus is the son of God, it means at least that much. Means more than that, but it means at least that much. He was the son like Adam was the son of God, like Israel was the son of God, like uh, Solomon was the son of God. But there was a difference. Adam was supposed to be, but he failed. He dishonored his heavenly father and he was expelled from the garden. Ancient Israel was to be God's son. But they failed, they dishonored their heavenly father, and they were sent into exile. Solomon was to be God's son, but in a sense, he failed, he dishonored his heavenly father. The kingdom, in part, was taken away from him. Jesus didn't fail. Where Adam, and Israel, and Solomon, and you and I, for that matter, where we have failed to honor our fathers and mothers... Where we fail to honor our Heavenly Father, Jesus has succeeded. In John chapter 8, there's a passage where Jesus is in debate with his enemies. They're trying to trip him up. At one point, they accuse him of, of being demon-possessed. Jesus says, I'm not demon-possessed, but I have honored my Father. It's virtually a quotation of the Fifth Commandment. And that's all the more astonishing when you think of what it meant for Jesus to honor his heavenly father. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says that the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Father. For me to have obeyed, to have honored my parents, apart from my sin, it would have been an easy thing. For Jesus to honor his father, it wasn't an easy thing in a sense, was it? Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And yet, he did that. Now, this is the really important thing. Why did Jesus do that? Did Jesus obey the law so he could set a good example, that we could follow his example? There's some truth in that. But there's more than that. Remember the passage that I'd quoted earlier when Paul said that God, at just the right time, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. How does it conclude? To redeem those who are under the law. Jesus' life was shaped by God's law. It was shaped by obedience to the Father's will. And why did he do that? The reason that he did that was for us. Because we haven't lived the sort of life that we should have done. When we come to God's law, it's a little bit like that experience of me staring at that photo of myself at 7 o'clock in the morning. We have a bit of a reality check. When we come to God's law, it shows us who we really are in a much profounder sense. It shows us our hearts. And we ought to be like the Israelites crying out for a mediator. Jesus is that mediator. That's why he came. That's why he was born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. As we come to God's law, we see our need for Jesus. Now, think of Jesus as we encounter him in the Gospels. Did Jesus ever say to somebody who came up to him, no, go away from me, you're too sinful? Did Jesus ever say to Peter, well, no, honestly, Peter, you've had too many shots. You know, that's it. I'm not having anything more to do with you. But Jesus never said that to Peter. And he'll never say that to you. When you become aware of your sinfulness, you can know that you can go to Jesus. And that he will receive you. And that he will forgive you. And have you done that? A lot of you I know. A lot of you I don't know. Have you experienced Jesus in that way? If you think of the psalm that we were singing, the great promise that it makes, Psalm 32... That if we turn to God, that if we confess our sins, that he'll forgive us. Have you made that your song, apart from just singing it in worship? Do you know Jesus in that way? He calls you to come to him. So we've looked at ourselves in light of God's law. We see what God's law is calling us to do. There are these people whom God has placed over us. We're to seek to honor them. That involves our actions and our attitude. We've looked at Jesus in height of God's law. Then finally, I want to come back to ourselves again. You see, we mustn't ever say, well, Jesus has kept the law, so I don't have to. We mustn't ever say, well, it doesn't really matter if I sin because Jesus will forgive me. That's what he does. Jesus does forgive everyone who comes humbly to him, but we mustn't use that as an excuse for sinning. If we are thinking like that, we would have to ask, well, have I really come to know him? Because if we have come to know Jesus, if we have come to feel how terrible our predicament is, if we've come to realize how much Jesus loves us, He would do that for me, even though I don't deserve it at all. If we've come to appreciate that, then the question that we should be asking is, what can I do to show him how grateful I am? You know, if someone does you a huge favor, then what do you do? You start thinking what you can do for them, how you can show how grateful you are. Well, how much more so with Jesus? If we've come to experience his grace, we should be asking, what can I do then to show him how grateful I am? And the answer, in part, is honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. That is, if we want to show our gratitude to Jesus, then we seek to live according to his law. So we look at ourselves in light of God's law. Through God's law, we become conscious of sin. One experience that the law will have is to reveal to us our need of a Savior. We've looked tonight at Jesus in light of God's law. Jesus lived a perfect life. He he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And he did that so that he can be your Savior, so that he can forgive you. Then when we come back to ourselves again, what does that mean for us? It means in him we find forgiveness, it means we flee to him, but it also means that as we seek to live our lives in gratitude, that we should seek to live lives that are shaped by God's law, that we should seek in that sense to follow his example. We'll bow our heads now as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice for your goodness to us. We come humbly before you. We think of the experience of the Israelites there at Mount Sinai, as how your glory was revealed to them and your holiness through your law, and they trembled. Forgive us for how often we treat you as a trifling thing. We pray, Father, that you would impress upon us a sense of your majesty and your holiness. Enable us to see ourselves as we truly are, as those who have not kept your law, as those who are unholy. And in light of that, Father, we pray that you would cause Jesus to be precious to us. We confess how often we take the gospel for granted as we consider that you should send your eternal Son into this world to be our Savior. That he should endure all of the miseries and hardships of this world. That he should endure the taunt and ridicule of his enemies. That he should be obedient even to the point of death. And that indeed, that he should endure the wrath of God that our sins deserve. May we tremble even, Father, at that. But we ask, too, that we would rejoice. May we hear the voice of Jesus calling to each one of us, that we would turn from our sin to you, coming humbly, confessing our sins. And we ask, Father, that you would be at work within us by your Holy Spirit. As we consider all that you have done for us, we pray, Father, that you would bless us and that you would enable us to offer to you all of our lives. As we experience your grace, and as we come to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, enable us, Father, to follow after him. We ask that you would take your law, and that you would write it upon our hearts. As we go out from here, we pray that you would bless us in our relationships, bless us in our families, with parents and children, husbands and wives, We pray that you would bless us as your church be with this congregation, with those whom you have given as leaders. We ask that you would bless every person here, that you would bless their relationships. And we ask, Father, that even in a sinful and depraved world, as we cling to the words of eternal life, we pray, Father, that that might be a witness to those around us that they would see our lives and as imperfect as they are, but nevertheless, that they would see that there is something different about them. And we pray, Father, that you would be pleased even to use our witness, even in our daily lives, to lead people to yourself. We pray, Father, for this congregation. We rejoice in the evident way, the clear way that you are at work here. We ask that that would continue. We pray, Father, that you would bless this congregation and bless all of your people throughout this city. We pray, Father, that you would watch over each one of us now as we go from here. Hear all our prayers and forgive our sins. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.